Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast where we take an in-depth and chronological look at the filmography of Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back to 1996 and discussing the sniper thriller Silent Trigger. In this experimental action film, Lundgren plays a mysterious sniper working for a mysterious organization as he embarks on his latest and presumably final assignment. But when the organization gets wind of Lundgren's conflicting morals, they send in everyone, including his own partner, to ensure that he stays employed or dead. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and joining me to chat this film today are two regulars to the show, Chris Prentice and Jeremy Damasu. Chris, it's been a while, but thank you so much for coming back, man. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be on for this one. It's a excellent film, uh, one that is kind of gone under the radar for uh, for Lundgren's overall career, so I'm uh, pretty excited to be on talking about it. Jeremy, what's up, man? Hey, how are you guys? I'm doing well, doing well. This is uh, this is going to be an interesting one to discuss today because you know, as we've been going through the filmography of Lundgren, you know, um, we've talked about how the the early films. I would say from about Rocky Four to Universal Soldier, that was Lundgren's quote unquote golden era, and you know, then he did Army of One and Pentathlon. But then, if you look at the films, Johnny Mnemonic, I'd say okay, so Men of War, Johnny Mnemonic, Hidden Assassin, and then Silent Trigger. I would classify this as being Lundgren's experimental era. Would you guys would you guys agree? That's a good way to put it. I haven't thought about it, but uh I I think it's it's uh, those films still follow his golden era uh even though the films have gone under the radar and uh but the the quality hasn't gone down. Uh it's just that the films are not as popular and have come out in a at a time when um his popularity uh was not as uh what it used to be so but uh the the films were uh in a way more interesting and and uh um you know uh, less uh campy in a way if i may say so uh and he, and he was trying to do something else and uh especially 1994 1995 when uh silent trigger was shot this was a time when uh Dolph was trying to do he was working on his craft as an actor and he was trying to do some theater and maybe I'll talk about it later but he did a uh, a play off Broadway right before he did uh silent trigger and I was thinking about it earlier that silent trigger it's a four character piece it can almost read as a as a play in a way well chris you and i were talking about that actually about a week ago when we were getting prepared for this is i've always felt out of all of lundgren's films i mean this is an art house film i mean you know it, it, it's classified as an action picture sure but i feel this is probably one of the mo more artsy of, of all the films that Lundgren has done. And I have always felt that about this film since the, the first time I ever watched it, is that this this movie could work exceptionally well as a stage play. And even the violence, especially the violence that occurs in the 
the final act of the film, you could almost excise that from from the film and it, it would still work and it would still be a play. Chris, would you agree? No, I definitely agree with that. It's, uh, you know, there, there is the action in the film is, is good. It's very well done, but it's pretty much on a, on a smaller scale. I mean, you know, there are explosions, but not not like you would see in, in some of his earlier movies. And so, yeah, I mean, I think between the fact that you have so few characters and you're dealing with so few locations, it kind of does give off that vibe of, of something that could have been turned into a stage play. And, uh, and and I think that's actually part of the film's charm. I mean, it just it just has a very different feel from the, you know, these sort of movies that were coming out all the time in the 90s, these kind of, you know, direct-to-video action films, and it just really stands apart. And I think uh, that that vibe of, of something that could work as a stage play is uh, is one of the reasons why it just has such a unique feel to it. Yeah, and I couldn't see this going to Broadway. Um, you know, <laughs> m- maybe it could one day, but I could definitely certainly see a small little uh, theater company, you know, putting something like this on and it working and, you know, it, um, it being a, a pretty captivating piece. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, the, the, the thing that's interesting uh, about the play that Dolph did uh, off Broadway was, you know, he met with a, a, a theater group, um, which was kind of, it wasn't about, you know, putting out some big plays and everything. It was more about, uh, working together and experimenting, and he did a one-act play. It's it's like a you know long monologue about you know it's just recently that I found out more about it. Uh, it was called uh, Watching Fire, and it was about uh, a man on the death row that was sitting in his cell and uh, just talking about his life and, and, you know, thinking about almost being like a philosopher and talking about different things. And that's completely uh, a role that uh, uh, was fitting and interesting for a guy like Dolph. And uh, Silent Trigger has also this kind of almost philosophical side about it uh, that you could... uh, already see in Men of War in his character and how he questions uh, his past and his life and stuff like that. And uh, so this, I think he saw these kinds of roles at the time as a way to, uh, since he was trying to part from the pure action roles to transition and still deliver uh, his uh, usual work. Yeah, no. And, you know, Chris, you had brought up an excellent point, something that I was that that I had written down as well, is that this this film was I mean, and and for the most part, even to this day, it's one of those films kind of like Men of War and to an extent to where it's unnoticed and, you know, for the most part, pretty unseen. Again, unless you are, you know, a fan of Lundgren or if you are, you know, one of these hardcore action junkies who was who was gobbling up what was hitting the direct video market around this time. But for the most part, this is a film that uh, for the past, you know, 20 years has gone under the radar and has been unnoticed and unseen. Yeah. And it's, that's even more surprising when you consider that, you know, not only was it one of, you know, Lundgren's initial 
you know, direct-to-video films. I mean, obviously he had had a, he had had maybe about five or six before this, but you know, this is kind of the period where he started to exclusively go direct-to-video. But you know, you consider that not only is he the star of it, but it's also directed by Russell Mulcahy, who obviously look. I'm not trying right. to say he was a gigantic director, but who had done a lot of theatrical, big-budget movies. In fact, the movie he did before Silent Trigger was The Shadow, which was a, a very, you know, pretty big budget, you know, summer type of movie, didn't really fare all that well. Um, so I think the fact that you had Lundgren starring and Mulcahy directing, you would I would have thought that it would have had a, a slightly bigger push even as a direct to video movie. But at least in the States, this was a this was a another one of his that first premiered on, on HBO on a Friday night. You know, back when HBO would do that sort of thing. And it, it was like another year from that point that it actually ended up, you know, going to, to VHS. And so it's just kind of interesting that you had some some recognizable people involved with this movie, but it, it really just got uh, basically just dumped onto video. I mean, there were there are certain direct-to-video movies back then that even though, yeah, they were going straight to the shelves, they would get something of a push um, and a little bit of marketing behind them, but but this one did not at all. Well, you know, and it's 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 films like this and experiences like this that make me all the more appreciate where Lundgren is now and where he is going to be this fall and winter. And I, I don't want to you know spend too much time on this since this is the Silent Trigger episode. But uh, if if anyone out there who has been following the the Facebook page, they'll notice I've been using the hashtag the Year of Dolph. And that's what 2018 is. Uh, you know, he has uh, November 21st, Creed 2 coming out, where he returns as Ivan Drago. And then exactly a month later, to the day, I, I just think that's amazing, <laughs> uh, December yeah. 21st, he is appearing in Aquaman. You know, these two big-budget, high-profile movies. I mean, the guy is back. I mean, you know, he had a, he had a push again uh, where he was back on the big screen with The Expendables. But the fact that he is, you know, having these two movies uh, coming out, you know, here, you know, within a month of each other it is awesome, you know, and you, you have to appreciate it and respect it and just get so excited. At least I am, you know, considering that, yeah, he was doing these direct to video movies that, you know, we love, that we appreciate and that we enjoy, but that were not given the uh, given the respect and the cred that you know, that they definitely deserve. So that's, that's one of the things that I am so looking forward to in the fall. Yeah. I'm, I'm completely psyched about that as well. Um, you know, I, I think the, the trailer for Aquaman, which just came out recently, even though Dolph didn't really appear in it, unless it's in a, in a quick shot that I missed, I thought it looked like a lot of fun. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm more hyped for, for Creed two. I mean, that I, I'm really expecting big things from that one. I think that's going to be a real good test for him to see if, if they can take this character who, you know, as much as I, I love, uh, Rocky four, if they can take a pretty one dimensional character and if they can kind of add a few more dimensions to it, which is what I'm hoping that they do with uh, Creed two. Um, I, I'm definitely pumped for that one. And, and Aquaman to me is kind of like uh, just kind of like icing on the cake. I think uh, I, I hope that he has a cool role, role in it. It's it's probably around maybe like the sixth or seventh lead. But uh, but yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I think it looks like a lot of fun. Jeremy, I was going to ask you of these two films that are going to be released within a month of each other. Which one are you looking more forward to, Creed two or Aquaman? Well, it, it's hard to tell. I mean, I'm definitely more pushing for Creed 2, 
because that's more right up my alley. And I think it, you know, especially when you saw the first one who was a real uh, surprise uh, and, you know, one of the, I think it was one of the best films of the the past five years. Uh, and I think Creed 2 has the potential for a real dramatic role uh, for Dolph, and I think they're pushing for this. Um, and at the same time, I'm looking to see what they're doing with this character in Aquaman. Uh, and it's, you know, I'm pumped uh, by the casting because... Uh, you have scenes with like people like William Dafoe. Uh, I believe he had scenes with Nicole Kidman. Uh, I mean, the the film has a really great cast, and um, the director James Wan is a fan of his. Um, so, and and that's um, you know, I'm I'm not a huge fan of those big uh, comic book movies that they do nowadays. Of old. Of all the ones that he he could have been in, uh, I think this is the for me in my taste that's the that's the best that could happen. So I'm really looking forward to this. But uh, so we'll see how these two um, do. But as much uh, looking forward to uh, Creed two and Aquaman, and uh, that should be cool. Well, and you know, I mean. To the to the general public, you know, uh, Lundgren is perhaps best known. He's probably, you know, forever going to be known as Ivan Drago, He-Man. A lot of people may have seen Showdown Little Tokyo and Universal Soldier. But f- for the most part, it's films like these. A lot of people did not know that he was working as steadily uh, as he was, you know, throughout this period. Yeah, and, and going back to Silent Trigger, Silent Trigger is one of those films, like we said, uh, that went under the radar. Uh, the film is pretty simple in its conceit. Um, you know, I mean, there's really not, it's really not a heck of a lot to it. Like, like you said, Jeremy, there's only four characters and four actors in the film. We have Dolph Lundgren, Gina Bellman, Conrad Dunn, and Christopher Herodal. Uh, the film is extremely simple in its conceit. I mean, if you really break it down and want to tell someone about the film, a sniper assassin is on his latest, and we are to assume his last mission. The film takes place in just a quiet, enclosed location. But the film is like an onion, you know? There's so much more going on to it, and there's so many different layers to it um, that, that, again, I think would work exceptionally well for a stage play. And before we, before we fully dive into it, I'm curious, I always like to ask, the first time that we that we saw the film, that we even knew about the film, Jeremy, I'll start with you. When did you when did you first see Silent Trigger, if you remember? Well, actually, actually, it was uh, for me. It was so uh, um, you know, in 1996 in in France, the shooter or hidden assassin was his last theatrical film, uh, and I knew about Silent Trigger. Which was first called the Algonquin Goodbye, uh, which is which I, I like as a kind of uh, you know cryptic title, you know that you don't expect for uh, an action vehicle for for Dolph. Uh, but the thing is, and we'll, we may go back to that, is that uh, Silent Trigger didn't come out in France until four years after it was released as, elsewhere. Uh, and I remember, uh, going to Ireland, 
and seeing a, a you know a video case on the shelf of a video store and 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 I was that was the first time I saw the the artwork uh, for the, the the cover and I was so frustrated because I couldn't buy the tape because it was a rental shop there was nowhere I could I could get the the film and and finally I got a, a, VH, a VHS tape from England two years later uh, until the movie finally came out here uh, in uh, 2000 whereas the the movie was completed uh, in 1996 so it, it that was one title that you know I I had to wait for you know I was um, so, so also what I wanted to say is that for France it was the the after showdown in little Tokyo and pentathlon that was really the the uh, like you said it was the really the beginning of Dolph's going uh, direct video uh, whereas the as you can tell when you see the film the film could have you know it it, it had a decent budget of around nine ten million dollars and it really slick it, it's really well shot uh, especially I mean the shame is that the movie was mostly seen uh, in four by three pan and scan video whereas it was shot in uh, widescreen 235 cinemascope and uh, there's not a lot of releases that has the movie in the original aspect ratio but uh, it really looks great but as we mentioned it's it's kind of artsy and I think that's why that's one of the reasons that it didn't get much of a push because the distributors were kind of reluctant and not buying it you know I mean especially they didn't believe that audiences would you know uh, go for a Dolph Rundgren outhouse film and I was told by the producer that that was one of the reasons that the movie was on the shelves uh, for, for France because the, the Fran French territory was one of the hardest sells for the movie and it got from distributor to distributor so anyway but other than that it was really shot as a theatrical film and and there's only a, a, a handful of territories where it came out theatrically Chris how about you when was the first time you saw it was it on HBO yeah, I'm well, assuming uh, well yeah like I had mentioned earlier this was uh, you know midnight this was about the fall of 96 and I uh, I was not uh, fortunate enough to to have HBO. I, I again I grew up in a, a cable deprived house, household, and yeah, but For sure. I remember the <laughs> yeah exactly I know terrible. Um, <laughs> but I, I you know I remember that you know back in '94 that was the 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 first time that I had seen Army of One was because it premiered on a Friday night on HBO and. I had a buddy who did have HBO and asked him to record it and, you know, certainly loved that movie. And so basically from, from that point on, I, every time, every time there was a, a new TV guide, I would, even though I didn't have HBO, I would be checking every Friday's listings to see, okay, is what, what's, what's on here? Is this something that, that I would want to see? And, you know, definitely hoping for, for some London flick to show up there. And it, uh, it, was about a about a two and a half year wait, but finally Silent Trigger that was the the next one that popped up, 
that that was one of his movies and hey sure enough the same buddy taped it for me and uh and that that's basically the first time that i saw it and i loved it then and yeah i mean I, it kind of blows me away that something something that that was that good was just kind of first seen on a on just a friday night hbo probably late in the evening and uh, but that's just the way it was back then and a lot of uh a lot of action movies premiered that way, and like I said, it was another year before it actually ended up on VHS in the in the states. So um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that I uh, had the HBO hookup on this one. Well, and my my experience, I guess, was was kind of similar to to both of yours in a way. Um, I did not see it uh, on HBO, you know, either. Unfortunately, um, the way I saw it is, you know, Jeremy, when you and I were talking about Men of War. I remember, you know, I distinctly remember seeing a trailer for Men of War on the Judge Dredd VHS. Uh, I saw a trailer for Silent Trigger on another VHS, um, but for the life of me, I cannot remember what movie it was. But, you know, all those movies, all those companies that were owned by Disney, you know, on those VHS, uh, you know, they would have trailers for films by the same company. I can't remember what movie it was, but I'm assuming it was some random action movie. But I remember seeing the trailer for it and got excited because, you know, this is, you know, b before the days, or excuse me, it's it's the early days of the internet when the internet was still in its infancy. But, you know, at least for me, you know, I, around this time, I was just starting high school. So I really had no idea what Lundgren had in the pipeline, kind of like what we have nowadays. So it was one of those things when you'd see a trailer, it was, oh, cool another Dolph Lundgren movie. And so I saw the trailer and I remember when it came out, you know, my rental store, uh, my, the video rental store that I would frequent, um, because it was a Dolph Lundgren film, they only had one copy of it. If it was an Arnold Schwarzenegger film or a Sylvester Stallone film, they would add a few more, but they just had one copy of silent trigger. And so I remember having to call the store multiple times a day to see if this copy was turned in so that I could, so that I could finally rent it. Um, I finally did. And I will say one of the things about this film, while you know we were talking about how it didn't get a fair marketing push, I will say that this probably has, even to this day, probably the coolest poster that Lundgren has ever been a part of, the coolest Dolph Lundgren movie poster ever out of all of his films. Just that shot of him standing there with that weapon and the building in the background, to this day, I think, just just stands out and looks so cool as opposed to everything else. Would you guys agree? Yeah, I, I definitely think that it's uh, it's 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 way up there. I mean, it's a very it's a very striking image. You know, it it, it basically tells you everything you need to know about. I mean, even though it, the movie is not quite as paint by numbers as as some of his direct to video films, it, it still gets the message across that. It's Dolph Lundgren. He's got a big giant gun. Rent this, and you're going to see him uh, use this gun to shoot a lot of people. And and you know that. So yeah, I mean, based on that, it is a very cool image. I like the kind of the the reddish orange tint kind of that's going on in there. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm definitely with you. It's uh, it's it's easily one of his uh, better better posters. Well, and I also found it interesting that Lundgren did two films back to back. I didn't even really think about this until, you know, watching these films in succession within the past couple months. But yeah, I just found it interesting that he did two films back to back that deal with sniper assassins. Um, it's my understanding that I had the same producer, both films had the same producer working on, on each of these films. But what's, what's, what's unique is the fact that the titles Hidden Assassin and Silent Trigger 
are interchangeable and can be swapped out with 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 you know with one another. Now, obviously, these were not the titles that the films originally had. But, you know, if you slapped the title Hidden Assassin on Silent Trigger or Silent Trigger on Hidden Assassin, no one's going to know the know the difference. And the films, I think, are still going to work and still play well to an extent. Jeremy, what what, what is your thoughts on that? You're right. And I'm, I'm not sure it was conscious. But for sure, even uh, if you take the, the original title of Hidden Assassin, which is the shooter, uh, you can also place it on Silent Trigger. The, the the big difference is that in the first one, Dolph isn't the actual sniper. But yeah, both films were produced by an, Ita- uh, an, an Italian uh, producer who was working in the States. Actually, he had been working for uh, Dino De Laurentiis. And, um, you know, they, they, they did um, the first one with uh, Ted Kocheff and... Uh, then they picked up the script for Silent Trigger, which had been going around since the the late 80s, and and uh, decided to go for another one. And having uh, interviewed uh, the producer, whose name is Silvio Bruaglia, he was uh, he was really cool and uh, had you know good ideas, and for sure he wasn't trying to go for the usual. Dolph Lundgren movies and uh, both experiences has been have been um, great for him. Not only working with Dolph, but working with Ted Kotcheff and Russell Mulcahy. I mean, um, we have briefly mentioned Mulcahy, but uh, I I think this was one of the best directors that Dolph uh, has worked with, and at the time, for sure, that was one of the things that excited me as well was the fact that he was doing a film with a director like Russell Mulcahy, who's, you know, of course he's not Martin Scorsese, but he had the the right amount of uh, acclaim and high profile. And also, you know, the the reason he's he's known and and he's been chosen for Silent Trigger was... I mean, Russell Mulcahy, uh, people forget, but he was one of the pioneers of music videos. And, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, having done Video Killed the Radio Star, and he's done lots of videos for huge bands and and, uh, singers. And then he got to do his first feature, which was another gem that I love. And he's also a bit in that experimental vein, which is uh, Razorback, you know, which was originally, it's kind of a, you know, Jaws ripoff, and, but the way Mulcahy did it is truly, uh, I'd say, a masterpiece of exploitation film. And nowadays, if people saw it, you know, it would look like a typical 80s film shot, like, as you'd say, like a music video or, you know, in in a style of MTV or something like that, but uh, Razorback was one of the first films that was shot like that, and that was the film that uh, made the producer want to hire Russell Mulcahy for Silent Trigger. Well, and regarding Lundgren's character, you know, Lundgren plays the character, so I'm going to be going back and forth on this, because in the film, in the credits for the film, he is known as Shooter, 
The second lead in the film is Gina Bellman. She is known as Spotter, yet on the 20th Century Fox release for this film, it has their names listed as Waxman and Clegg. And so I am going to be going back and forth. I, I think for, for the duration of this episode, I think I'm going to refer to them as Waxman and Clegg, if that's okay with you. Even though in the film, they're keeping with that whole angle of the, you know, how this is a mysterious profession and these, these two leads are extremely mysterious. And so it just refers to them as shooter and spotter. Chris, do, do you have a preference one way or another? Um, yeah, I, I tend to like the shooter and spotter. I, I think. Okay. Not really knowing their names, I don't know, it kind of adds a little bit. I mean, there's a lot of mystery in the movie already. So I, I think, you know, the fact that we just we just don't know who these people are. Um, I don't know, I sort of like that vibe to it. Um, and, you know, basically it kind of reinforces that you know, uh, nothing is really as it seems. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know, I, I kind of dig just calling them shooter and spotter. Yeah, I was about to say there's a reason uh, why they actually removed their names. So the the name you see on certain video covers are the names that were written on earlier drafts of the screenplay. And the writer, and I'll come back to that as to what he wanted to do with this piece. So he told me that uh, they chose kept them, to keep them nameless. Because the whole film is kind of a, an allegory and, and uh, it plays on a more symbolic side. And so the, 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 the whole film is a bit of a metaphor and, and it's, it, it doesn't matter who those people are. And it's, it's more about the, the whole setting in this building. What he wanted to do was to do a nihilistic piece. Uh, something that's really claustrophobic and something something that has to do with the you know the act of killing and kind of um, you know men ver versus the building and something that's bigger than them. Yeah, the the whole thing. I mean, actually, originally the the, the entire story was taking place in the building. There were no flashbacks, and they decided to add those flashbacks in pre-production to, to sort of get a bigger scope and, and get out of this uh, place. Otherwise, it would have been really, really dark and, and claustrophobic. And I guess I can say it here that in, in the original script, these four characters uh, killed each other. Like, nobody came out alive of this. So, so it was a really, really dark piece. And of course, this would have been a harder sell for sure, uh, to the distributors and the audience. But yeah, I mean, this was this was not a studio. Obviously, this was not a, a studio-driven project. Uh, it was originally written as a spec script in 1987, and it, it that's why it's so atypical as opposed to uh, an action film that would have been developed by a studio. Well, this could be very, you know, this could very well be probably the most mysterious character Lundgren has ever played. And I, like you said, Chris, I think that's one of the things that, that is so notable about the character and about the film. We are given absolutely zero background information about the character of Shooter. I mean, this, this, we, we are given nothing. And you know what? It, it, it works. I will say it right now. This was one of the aspects about the film that on my initial viewing, you know, 20 years ago, 
that I didn't really care for, you know. Um, but as I watch it now, I can certainly appreciate it because this is essentially this is Lundgren's version of Eastwood's The Man with No Name. You know, he is a figure with no name, no background, just someone who comes in, kills with efficiency, no questions asked, no questions answered. I mean, he is this is his job. This is what he does. And so. If you look at it from that angle and you want to compare it to that as this being Lundgren's man with no name, I think it works. Yeah, no, I know. I agree with you there. I think that his character uh, being you know fairly different from a lot of the ones he, he had played earlier. Uh, you know, he, he's not really a, a wisecracker. He's not evil. Um, he's you know, he's a good guy, but he's not exactly the kind of the prototypical hero. In, in of these sort of movies i mean he is still an assassin he's just one that's kind of been questioning his uh his own beliefs so it, it's not a real black hat white hat kind of kind of uh kind of role there's a lot of shades of gray in there and and again i think that's one of the reasons why this particular movie stands out among his filmography is just because it's it, it's not a character that you can clearly define um, as just, oh, okay, he's the good copper. He's the, the bad former Vietnam soldier who's run amok. He's just kind of playing the middle. And, uh, and I, and I think that was actually a very good choice. And it's, uh, it's one of the reasons that the, the movie uh, still works, uh, even after all these years. Well, and the film shifts from, like you mentioned, Jeremy, uh, the film shifts from the past to the present. And so, you know, the past is their previous mission, which was a failed mission. The present is their their current mission. I, and I shouldn't say mission. It is an assignment, their, their latest assignment. Um, but the past in particular focuses on what we are to assume was Lundgren's latest mission. He was paired with Gina Bellman's character. Gina Bellman's character is known in the film as Spotter. Lundgren is the shooter. Uh, both work for this mysterious company known as the Agency. We, like Lundgren's character, we are given absolutely no information about the Agency, what kind of company this is, what they do. Obviously, they hire assassinations, but we are given zero information as to why, you know, how long they've been working for the company. We're, we're told briefly that that Gina Bellman's character is a rookie on this mission, but uh, I guess some time has passed to where she has become a little more seasoned. I want to talk real quick about Gina Bellman in this in this role. So, yeah, she plays the character of Spotter, also known as Clegg, depending on <laughs> depending on which Blu-ray <laughs> or which DVD you have. The only other thing now, I guess she was in the show Leverage, but I'm going to be honest, that was yeah. a show I never watched. Did you watch that show, Jeremy or Chris? I never saw it. OK, um, she was also in a British sitcom called Coupling. Now, I did see a couple episodes of this. This was kind of the this was essentially the British version of, of Friends here in America. We had we had Friends. You know, in England, they had they had coupling. Interestingly, uh, America tried doing an American version of the show coupling using the exact same scripts, but it did not click with American audiences. But, yeah, she was in that show for a few seasons. Yeah, I uh, I basically all I ever saw of leverage were promos. because it was, it was on TNT. I, I watch a lot of basketball. They, they show a lot of basketball. So I would see the promos all the time. And, you know, she would kind of pop up and I would just go, oh, OK, yeah, from Silent Trigger. Good for her. All right. Good going. You do. Maybe we are. I, I never I never <laughs> watched it. Maybe we are like one of what a dozen people who, you know, when they would see those promos say, oh, yeah, Clegg from Silent Trigger. I can't imagine too many other oh. people who are making that <laughs> making that connection. No, I, <laughs> right. 
I'm sure that's why she was hired. I had to be on based on Silent <laughs> Trigger. I mean, my God. I mean, come on. Those guys at TNT, they know what they're doing. <laughs> so No, but but Silent Trigger, I think, was... I mean, she has done some things before, but it was quite early in her career. But apparently, she's got a really good run since then. Uh, I guess most notably on TV. And with shows like Leverage, you know, we most moviegoers and cinephiles probably don't know her that well, but she seems to have reached a, quite a level of popularity uh, among TV stars. So, I mean, that also proves the, you know, the the, the casting of her in Silent Trigger, the fact that they gave her a shot as uh, an up-and-coming actress, especially for an American production. You know, I'm sure nobody in America knew her back then, so it was it was a uh, really nice attempt for finding uh, an up-and-coming talent. I I'll say this though is that you know she she has a, a way better agent than um, Rushka Detmers because. After him, assassin. That was that was all. That was all she wrote. That was it. Goodbye. Yeah. Well, well, she did. A, I'd say in her defense that she did a lot of stuff in in uh, in Europe. I mean, that's the thing. She hasn't done much internationally, but in Europe, uh, don't worry. She's she's good. <laughs> well, you know, Gina Bellman in this role. I mean, she is. You know, and I liked Marushka Detmers in Hidden Assassin, but Gina Bellman in this role, I mean, she is smoking and she just, I mean, she is so tough and such a badass in this film that, yeah, and if you look at her in, in Leverage, it seems like she's kind of playing a, a, a similar character, just a confident, you know, uh, tough, good looking woman. But yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that we have not seen much more of Marushka Detmers in America, but you know, Hey, at least, at least they're both working, I guess. Right. Yeah. And for instance, also, uh, I mean, actually it's interesting that, uh, those two films that Dolph did back to back films where he shared the, the, the screen with female characters who were really pretty much his equal. We haven't seen much of that, except for, I guess, uh, Joshua Tree, Army of One. And, for instance, uh, Gina Belsman character is not a, a typical role uh, for a woman, especially in those days. And, and, and like, she has... You know, at the beginning, you, 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 can, you can think, oh, you know, this is the the nice rookie and she's uh she's beautiful and but she kind of looks like a a bit naive and everything and but then you realize she she's actually kind of tough and, and uh especially when she's more seasoned and also knows how who how to handle herself and she has pretty striking eyes like she 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 gives looks uh, and that was probably one of her strengths when she, I mean, I'm not sure if she, I mean, she probably had to audition or do some tests to get the role. And that's probably one of the things that got her the part. And uh, that's making her pretty magnetic. I haven't got the chance. I was trying to do an interview with her. and and But I, I guess, you know, of course, her agent didn't didn't think it was... 
uh, interesting enough, but uh, otherwise, I'm I would be pretty sure that she had a good time doing this part because you c- you can tell she's uh, playing with it. I-, I think she was wonderful in the movie. I mean, yeah, she's she's very easy on the eyes, so you know that's. But you know, honestly, in, in Hollywood, that's really not even that much of a skill. Um, but I mean, she I buy her in this role. I buy her as someone who would be a spotter for this kind of shady organization. And I mean, I think she, she just really comes off legit in the whole performance and, and not, I mean, I don't want to get too far ahead, but she, she has pretty much one of the coolest kills of, of, of the nineties when she, uh, she shoots the guy from under the chin and you get that big oh. blood squib coming out the, of the oh, helmet. I, I mean, the, the I think that's yeah, his brains. I was gonna, I was gonna comment on that. I think that's his brains that comes out of the helmet, is it not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's got to be a mixture of brain matter, blood, and and you know, I mean, it's, it's such a a cool shot, and it's 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 just one of those moments that's like the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my, I've never seen a a demise like that before. It's it's you know, it's it's not like it's the final villain of the movie. It's just kind of one of the the henchmen, and I just was like taken aback. And you know, to this day, it's one of those those moments where I'm like, "Oh my God, that's that is such a cool shot right there." Um, so so I you know, for whatever whatever her career has taken her since the film, I mean, she she's always got, in my opinion, you know, one of the better '90s kills right there. Well, and regarding this this previous mission, Lundgren is to shoot a female politician, but he becomes hesitant when the woman lifts an infant in the air, and this is where we see Lundgren's character arc. Now, you know, let, let's face it, we have seen this type of character arc played out numerous times in action films, especially action films of the of the 90s, you know. He's the assassin who's suddenly having a change of heart and wants out, but is unable to leave due to his pushy employers. Also, the lure of easy money, easy cash keeps him in the game but if you look at a lot of the films around this time we've seen this this particular character arc played numerous times uh, stallone did this twice practically uh he did it in the specialist and then in assassins chow yun fat did the same type of character in the replacement killers but you know something i don't mind it um i, I think if, if you're going to establish a character like this if you need excuse me if, if your main character is going to be an assassin a hitman for hire you almost need your character to kind of go through this type of arc because it allows you to sympathize with your hero. But at the same time, it also effectively establishes him as a badass. So while this that type of character has been played out before, again, I'll watch Lundgren and anything he does. But you know what? I don't mind it watching it, watching Lundgren try his hand at this type of character. Yeah, and also I'd say it plays differently than than in Stallone's Assassins or other movies like that. And, and, and to me, I can't help but thinking, you know, I think, as we've said during the Men of War episode, that this is one of the follow-ups of his, you know, Red Scorpion, Men of War, Silent Trigger. So it, 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 at the time, it was kind of like his, uh, one of his recurrent themes. And here it's it's more abstract, but in a way it almost pushes the metaphor further in the way that he's the you know the assassin or the perfect soldier killing machine. Say it almost pushes to the way where it's it's a bit of the Prometheus myth, where you know Prometheus turns against the gods and 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 all that. And at the same time, you can see him as a kind of 
Frankenstein creature type of figure where, you know, the, the, the creature finds its humanity and emotions and turns against its master. Yeah, definitely. Well, Lundgren is unable to complete this mission, and this is what botches the entire job, and this is everything that we see in the flashback. A helicopter with soldiers opens fire on both shooter and spotter, and they're forced to flee. And this, so this is what causes the, the mission to be considered a failure. I'll just say it. I love Lundgren's weapon here. This is one of the things that I think is so memorable about the film. He fires a shot square at the pilot of the helicopter and is able to pick off the rest of the soldiers with incredible accuracy. I was so curious about this weapon that I actually looked it up. There is a website. Chris, after you and I were talking about Red Scorpion, I remember you mentioning, you know, is there a, is there a website out there that um, that is devoted to movie firearms? And there is. Uh, it is. Oh yeah. <laughs> it is the it is the Internet Movie Firearms Database, and so I looked up the name of this weapon. It's called an Iver Johnson Amac fifteen hundred, and so what is interesting about it? The bolt needs to be completely removed so that a new round can be loaded. But you know, no doubt about it. I mean, and I'm not a firearms expert by any means, and I don't want to be. But <laughs> but the, the, this this piece that he fires is memorable. It, it's similar to the weapon used in Red Scorpion and Men of War, it just in, in the fact that it's a signature weapon that is memorable and that it is signature. They have provided Lundgren with with a piece that, like I said, that is memorable. I, I love how they give Lundgren's protagonist just a signature weapon in each of these films. And with, with regard to this one, one shot from this rifle just blasts apart anyone in its way. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a very impressive weapon. It, I mean, and, and like you had mentioned, with uh, you know, just like with uh, Red Scorpion and Men of War, I mean, those th those weapons are so distinct they become like yeah. characters themselves. I mean, you want to see them in action. It's like, but yeah, but you want to see Dolph raising that big that big giant rifle, and it it really is all you know all the little, you know, again, I, like you, I'm not a real firearms expert. I just know if something looks cool, it looks cool. And, you know, all the little maneuvers he has to do to get it loaded and all the little, oh, yeah. you know, I got to crank crank this and do that. And I got to eh, all that <laughs> stuff just looks cool. And, uh, it does. and it's, you know, I mean, it's one thing when you've got, you know, a movie where someone's just, you know, blasting away some typical machine gun and, and okay, that's fine and good. But, you know, this is like, it's almost like a musical instrument, this thing. It's just the way he, it's like he plays it pretty much. And yeah. uh, it's 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 very very cool and and yeah seeing him just blasting people with this thing and and, and that kind of brings up something that I kind of mentioned maybe a little bit earlier but just the squib work in this movie is great I mean just the 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 impact and the shots and the squibs I mean it, it it's again I think it's one of the one of the, the the better features in the film is who whoever was in charge of the practical effects uh, did a marvelous job. Oh, definitely, definitely. Well, in the film, you were talking about how the weapons are characters in themselves, and that that's an excellent segue to the setting of the film. You know, the 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 film shifts to the main setting. This is the present day. Uh, it is an unfinished skyscraper called the Algonquin. This is such a cool, memorable setting. The fact that it's unfinished and still under construction gives the location a bit of style, and and the look of the place is extremely is it's extremely slick, you know. But yeah, like you said, the weapons are a character, and in a film like this, I feel like I I can't believe I'm bringing this up, but it's similar in a sense to the film Skyscraper, the film that is in <laughs> the Dwayne Johnson action picture that is a ripoff of 
Die Hard mixed with Towering Inferno. But yeah, the, the film uh, Skyscraper is is similar to this. And it, look, Skyscraper is it's a for, it's a forgettable film. No one's going to remember it in you know here in a year. But I feel like it's kind of it's kind of an, an unwritten law that if you're going to make an action movie and you're going to make this action movie take place in an enclosed location where the location is a character in itself, then you got to make that location look cool. It needs to stand out and it needs to look cool. And that's one thing I will give Skyscraper and I'm going to give Silent Trigger as well is the Skyscraper in both of these films. Now, I've never seen a building look like this, but in both those films, that set piece looks cool visually and stylistically it just it looks slick and if you're going to set it in an enclosed location like i said then it, it needs to have a certain kind of edge and a certain kind of style to it yeah and i i wanted to mention actually that uh in terms of artistic design and, and um special effects that you don't realize how much Silent Trigger uses a mix of miniatures, built sets, uh, and a little bit of CGI. So it, it was, I mean, mostly it was done the old ways with, with you know, even made paintings, you know, and, and especially for, you know, it wasn't a, a, um, a really, really low budget, uh, but it wasn't a huge budget either, and they managed to combine made paintings and miniatures and uh and things like that and i think that was uh, that's something to 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 admire especially since these ways were of, of filmmaking were in its last days i guess for the most part and uh of course russell mulcahy is you know he was uh Known for his slick camera moves and cinematography, but also, you know, he's, he's, uh, really good at, at uh, production design and, and all that. As for the, the look of the building, someone found a, a, a Japanese building that has the, the s same type of shape that this one has. And so you, you might, you could think it the um, Silent Trigger building was inspired by this Japanese building that actually exists. Chris, what do you think about the fifth character in the film, the Algonquin? <laughs> oh yeah, no, I, I just like the uh, the rifle. It, it's it, it 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 is its own character. It, it sets a mood. Um, it's like you mentioned. It's a memorable location. If you're gonna be in this particular location for such a long time, like they are in this film, it better be a location that is going to pop out. And you, you know, you can't just, you know, go to any random office building and, and, and start filming. I mean, you got to have something that's going to, that's going to, it's going to pop and is going to really jump out at people and is going to, like, like we've said, is, is going to be its own character. And they, they did a, a marvelous job in, uh, in finding this location and 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 using it to their advantage, because uh, it's like every time 
you know, every time they, they, they start walking around the, the that location, it's like you, you want to see more of it. I mean, that you want to I mean, you just want to see more of, of the whole the whole area. And and I think that's that's kind of the whole point is when you're in in a, a very stylized setting like that is, uh, you know, you just want to see much more of it. And so, yeah, definitely a great job with the with the, the location and uh, and the, the whole design of that that building. Well, and like I said, I love the fact that it's still under construction. I just think that that, that little aspect gives the film a, a little bit of style. And maybe they did that for budgetary reasons. I don't know. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think that that just that just makes it stand out. And with regard to this job that they're on, their latest assignment, again, kind of like the last one. We have no idea, even by the end of the film. That's what I think is so is is so interesting about the film. And and to a certain extent, maybe even a little frustrating, but we have no idea who this target is. We have no idea why this target happens to be a target. And I feel like I, I, in the end, upon watching it again, and it can't, I can't believe it took me this long to come upon this realization, but I feel like that's the point of the, it's the point of the film, the, the, the writer of the film and the director, everyone working on it. I think what they wanted to do was they wanted to put the viewer into the shoes of these assassins and these, these, these targets, these people who they are killing, they're, they're just targets. And to them, they're not even, they're not even people. They're not even, they don't even really exist. They're just target. They're just jobs. And that is it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's similar to what I said about the characters' names. It wasn't about that in in this piece. So it it didn't matter uh, where it took place and who those characters were, who their targets were. Uh, which is brought up in a dialogue in, in, in the film. And um, it, it was also there's this sense of, uh, you know, for instance, towards the end, we don't know who the, the, the new target is. Is it the same women that they failed to kill before or is it somebody else? And, and in some way you can interpret it the way you want and in another way, the whole thing is a... Is a a story that 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 goes in circle, like you know, it it it, it goes on and on, and it, it it could happen again and again, and it's it's kind of a Groundhog Day kind of thing where, <laughs> um, you know, it it keeps coming back. It's it's more, uh, the 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 whole thing was was more abstract and and symbolic than trying to put out a. a a cleared out story where you know everything about everything and you know where it takes place and when it takes place and and I was about to bring up also about the you know the setting of this um building in construction Dolph calls uh some character calls it uh what is it like techno crap or something like that but there's the whole thing gives you also a kind of futuristic look or kind of almost post-apocalyptic kind of world like you you really cannot tell and it, it seems like it's it, it's placed in a sort of no man's land and everything uh, so so it all uh it all comes back to this well and we're also introduced to the other two characters in the film o'hara and klein now o'hara is played by christopher Herodal. klein is played by conrad dunn they are the security personnel for the algonquin O'Hara is just a pure sleazeball to the max. He's addicted to drugs. He drinks on the job. He's 
a misogynist. He's just a he's a rapist. I mean, he's just a, a, a prick to the core. And then we have Klein, who is apparently he is new and he has taken his job extremely seriously. Real quick regarding these actors, Conrad Dunn ended up playing a villain against Dolph almost 10 years later in the film Direct Action. And then Heyerdahl, he actually worked with Lundgren again in The Peacekeeper. And he's gone on to work quite steadily and regularly in film today. Uh, I guess he showed up in the film Sicario, Day of the Soldado, the sequel to Sicario. He's also in the, he also shows up as the villain in the Amazon series Tin Star. Chris, have, have you seen him in, uh, in other things over the past 20 years as well? Um, you know, I, I did, I saw the very first episode of that, the 10 star. So I did see him pop up there. I know that he was also on the the show that ran for a little while called hell on wheels. I, I know that he was on that one for, you know, how, how big of a, a party had on that. I don't know, but I know that he, he was at least a reoccurring character on there. So, you know, he has, you know, definitely been, been sticking to it and 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 I, I i man i saw sicario too but i can't quite remember who he was in there if, uh did you do you remember who he was played in that one i i can't remember either but the fact that he was in it shows that he's <laughs> he's still huh. getting work yeah but um but yeah and i will say that i think he has grown as an actor because there's there's some parts in this film i mean he, he is he is playing a dirtbag you know perfectly but there are some parts i think where his acting is a little is a little rusty. If you watch him in Tin Star, he has perfected this accent and he is chilling. I mean, he's he's pretty dastardly and mean in Silent Trigger, but in Tin Star, he just has this um this very quiet evil demeanor about him that is that is pretty chilling. But yeah, no, I do appreciate the fact that he is still working and that he has grown as much as as much as he has. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I as for uh, you know Conrad Dunn, I think I think he's good in this, and I thought he was, you know, pretty good. I mean, it was a kind of a one-note kind of crooked cop character in, uh, in you know, direct action. But uh, I think he's a, you know, pretty good actor. I, I, I can't think of other things that I may have seen him in, but I, I really liked him uh, in Silent Trigger. I thought he did a great job. I, I believe if if you look at his credits on IMDb, he's been in, you know, probably. 75% of movies and DTV movies that has have been shot around Montreal and Toronto. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> so well, uh, but you know, explains sh- it. Uh, Shooter and Spotter, you know, they arrive at this at this building. Uh, we're to assume, obviously, that they're you know on their latest assignment. Spotter is there. She shows up saying that she's there to check on some computers in the building, and we get to see the first few uncomfortable interactions between O'Hara and Clegg, or excuse me, Spotter, sorry. Uh, (laughs) We get to see some of these interactions between them. We know pretty much from the get-go that O'Hara is up to no good. He is just uncomfortably lecherous to Spotter. I mean, it's just, it's extremely gross and uncomfortable, and every time he is pretty much on screen. And so we know that he he is a character who is going to be despicable and that we are hoping Dolph delivers some justice to Chris what do you think about this character <laughs> yeah I mean he's like you said he's a great a sleazebag um and uh, yeah I, I think uh Herodal did a did a really good job with it yeah it does get a little over the top at times um you know especially you know later on when he's you know seeing the uh the, the, the spiders all around him and uh, oh boy yeah. Uh, yeah it gets a little over the top but um I think he does a pretty good job playing that that 
you know, if that's if that's what was on the page, I think he did a great job playing it. And uh, yeah, I think it's also you know pretty funny the sight of him dragging along the toilet, uh, you know, towards uh, towards the end of the movie. Um, so yeah, it's it's a one note character. He's a he's an absolute sleazeball, and but I think he does a great job playing that particular type of character. And what's interesting is Shooter and Spotter, they have no idea that they're to be reteamed for this latest assignment. And so we see that there is a fair amount of distrust between both of them. And so we don't know exactly why there's this distrust. Here's the big, big question that that I've always wondered about this film. And like I said, the, the fact that it leaves out some of these little details is one of the things that has always slightly kind of frustrated with frustrated me about it. But Chris, I'll go to you. How much time do you think has passed between the failed mission and the current assignment? Do you think it's been a month or longer? Um, that sounds about right. I mean, you figure it, it, it must have been just enough time for him to to you know leave whatever country the first mission went bad in and find an apartment where he could just sleep on a mattress for a little while. <laughs> and uh but you know well before before the the new assignment is granted so yeah that that sounds about right i mean i didn't i never got the sense that there was this huge stretch of time in between the two missions um you know it, i don't think i don't think there was really any dialogue that alluded to there being a lot of time um so yeah i i think you know about a month or two that that sounds about right that that's that's kind of what i've always inferred from watching it jeremy how much time do you think has passed well, I, I think you can you can take it both ways. I mean, you can take it that it was shortly after the first assignment, or you can also think that actually maybe a year or a couple of years have passed. I mean, for for instance, for me, it, it plays better. Like the the for me the the flashbacks, especially like for instance when they encounter each other again and go to these flashbacks didn't it wouldn't make as much sense to me if it was about something that happened you know about a, a month ago and she has a, a, a much different look which is actually uh, uh, a testament to you know uh, what they did to her because obviously the movie wasn't shot over the course of, of a long time and and she definitely looks a lot different and plays it a lot different. Uh, and I'm not sure she would have gained as much confidence yeah. that fast. I was going to say that as well. I uh, almost kind of wonder if maybe it's been six months to a year because in that first mission, she's a rookie. Like you said, Jeremy, she is so much more confident. And she even says to Lundgren numerous times, I'm not a rookie anymore. So I almost kind of wonder if it's as much as, as a year. Yeah, maybe. Well, I, so, I mean, th this is kind of what I'm thinking. So in the f the first mission, you know, he, he doesn't do what he's paid to do. And this organization is trying to, you know, tries to kill him. So, I mean, is it, re are they really going to wait a year to True. You know, stage, <laughs> you know, this other, this other assassination attempt, not to mention the fact that they have kind of an insurance policy of, you know, literally replacement killers on standby to uh to carry out the mission so i don't know I, I i never really felt like there was too much time that would have passed because you know I, it just seemed like this is sort of uh okay you screwed up this first one you didn't do what you were supposed to do 
we're going to get you back out there and we're going to make sure that, that you still have that, that, you know, killer instinct in you um, or, or else it's curtains for you. And so that's why I always kind of felt that maybe it was a, a little bit, a little bit less time than, than maybe a year. Okay. okay. Well, I, I think that that's, that's one of the loopholes of the, of 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 the story uh, and uh so it's it's you know it's kind of like when you're trying to dissect time travel movies and there's always a thing where you're like oh you know this this doesn't work or it doesn't make sense and and i think that's here you you touch uh one of those situations but again this is i think you should just uh accept the 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 world of the of the film as it is as it's presented to it without thinking too much about it because as we've seen you know none is precise and no, nothing is supposed to be depicting precise locations and characters and and it, it's more of a a symbolic philosophical tale you know of uh, a, a kind of way of looking at humanity and and you know when i talked to the the writer he was telling me how he was you know very fairly uh he had a fairly dark vision of 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 humanity and it's this is one of those stories where he he put some of that into this script well, and Chris, you and I have talked about it numerous times. When it comes to time travel, that's just one of those things. If you're a screenwriter and you're incorporating time travel into your film, you're going to have problems because <laughs> that's just that's just one oh, of those yeah. areas no, no, no that doubt. maybe you better not touch. But, <laughs> but you know, it does. What, what, what is interesting is the past. I, I, w- I would argue that the, the past scenes or the, the flashback scenes are probably – they're certainly the most disturbing, but maybe even the most violent. You know, we have Clegg, or excuse me, Spotter. Uh, she's still relatively new to the agency. Uh, the past mission, like we said, was her first mission. And she committed her first kill. And this has this has shaken her, you know, rightfully as it should. And they're both on the run with zero contact to the agency. And they are literally lost in this war zone. We, we don't really know exactly where they are, but it is a war zone. There is, you know, a, a war that is going on. And they bear witness to some innocent villagers who are executed. Uh, Spotter is driving through this war zone. Waxman, excuse me, shooter. He instructs her not to stop, but she does. Again, she is young. She is a rookie. And Shooter is forced to kill off the soldiers stopping their car. So this is, I would say, this is one of the real turning points in the film. One of these soldiers is young and starts running for his life. Shooter grabs a sniper rifle, not his signature rifle that he used earlier, but another rifle, and he eliminates this threat who is running. This event seems to have disturbed shooter slightly because he keeps coming back to it throughout the film i mean in fact this scene is the event that he was dreaming about when the movie first opens that's uh that's shown over those over the opening title sequence so this i would argue is probably where we see that that arc forming in the character of shooter where he's realizing you know what i've done a lot of a lot of nasty shit in my in my career i'm tired of doing it this isn't right I'm ready to. I'm ready to call it Chris. Chris, would you agree? Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I always refer to the gun that he uses as his, like his travel rifle. Um, that's, <laughs> that's my, my my thought. That's 
it's like he's like, oh, you know, I can't really unload the big giant one here, but you know, I've got the travel rifle and I can I can set that up pretty quick, and uh, and you know that'll take care of business. But yeah, I really do like that scene. You know, it's 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 a pretty it's a very violent scene, and it's you know pretty disturbing by what's going on. But but yeah, I mean, I, I certainly kind of have the same read on it that you do. That it's kind of you know as disillusioned as he's as he's already been. This is kind of what puts him puts him over the line and but yeah that that whole sequence of the soldier running um and you know i you know not that i've ever been in that situation but i mean did the the guy need to run in a straight line i mean maybe maybe zigzag a little (laughs) bit here and there you know just to kind of throw throw things off a little but hey whatever it's a panic i understand these things happen but um but yeah but the way that he he shoots them and then he just has that that dead-eyed look to to gina bellman and just i told you not to stop and i mean that's yeah. just, just a, a great capper for that scene it's uh you know it, in a way you can kind of look at it as sort of a darkly uh comic line in, in just the way that he you know hey if you had to, if you if you had to stop we could have avoided all this but yeah it's also just kind of can be read as just a very kind of chilling read that that he he's pretty much been broken at this point the one thing we haven't talked about with this film that I do want to touch upon briefly are the special effects. And now I, I will say, you know, it, it's not a, it's not a huge gripe, but this is one of the small gripes in the film. The special effects are are you know slightly lacking. And now I understand this is the this was the early days of CGI, so it's not not where you know it's grown to nowadays. But there are two scenes in particular in the film that just look off. I, I that's that's the best way I can describe them. The helicopter explosion at the beginning, and then there's another shot about 15 minutes into the film where Lundgren is staring out of the Algonquin as the camera zooms out, and it just looks like a it looks like a black box was put on a matte painting, and they filmed that. It's not both these scenes are not terribly distracting, but they are some of the things that um, I think definitely do not play well. Well, they didn't play in 1996. I will tell you that when I saw it in 1996, I remember seeing those scenes and thinking, okay, that, that doesn't look right. But nowadays compared to what we have, it, it's a small gripe. Well, yeah. Yeah. The, the, one of the things, I mean, y- you know, Russell Mulcahy and others would agree because this is where, I mean, for, for the most part, the, the, the movie used actual, physical effects uh greatly but the the few cgis that you that you see in it and as you said you know it was shot in 1995 and 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 uh so this uh, you know cgi it was the early days of cgi especially in terms of uh productions that were not blockbusters so it was the uh one of those situations where the the they couldn't choose the the company that did the digital effects, and you know they didn't have time, and so this was just rushed and 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 done pretty quickly, and probably without having a say of you know oh this isn't tried, just change this and that, and that's one of the few flaws of the film, and and it's a shame because other than that the 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 film has really great production value, and this is one of the best-looking films of Dolph's, I'd say, in terms of art direction and, and production design and and even the main title sequence that we we haven't mentioned, but 
it's one of the, the, the few opening sequences in a, in a doll film that has been really worked on in, in, in a way that's uh, a little bit artistic. Oh, yeah. No, th- there is a style to this film that no other film in his filmography can match. I mean, just the style to this film is so noticeable. And I'm glad that you mentioned earlier that, you know, Mulcahy got his start on music videos because, yeah, this has that same kind of music video look and that, that music video edge. But, you know, going back to the film, O'Hara, the character of O'Hara has gone. We Like we said, we, we saw him early in the film and we knew that something was a little off. But by this point in the movie, he has gone completely off the rails due to his constant drug use. Uh, like you said, Chris, it's one of the more bizarre scenes in the film that <laughs> I remember seeing it in, in 1996 and thinking, hey, what what the hell is this? But yeah, he shows Klein <laughs> his, his numerous spider tattoos. He starts suiting up with body armor and packing weaponry. He, you know, he has the eye for, for the character of, of Spotter. And so, yeah, he starts, you know, arming himself up with body armor and packing weaponry. And he later hallucinates with some spiders crawling around him. It's it's an odd scene. Chris, I, I'm curious, how do, how do you make sense of that scene? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I almost make sense of it in that they they had some, some somebody who was doing visual effects for the movie. And that person was uh, was contracted to work on it for a certain amount of time. <laughs> uh, they they probably didn't spend too much time on the explosion of the helicopter in the beginning, so it's like, hey, I'm still here for a week. What do you want me to do? Uh, I got spiders, spiders on my computer. You want me to put these in? <laughs> yeah, we, I got I got I got lots of spiders. Just, can you work them in somehow? I, I mean, I, I, something tells I, I find it hard to believe. Maybe it was. I mean, I've never read any of the versions of the script like the like Jeremy, but it would just seem like kind of a weird thing to all of a sudden be in the script of. Uh, he hallucinates spiders, and we see these these spiders um, on the screen. It, it's it's a weird moment. It, it kind of takes you out of the movie. I, I think honestly, I think the the tattoos that was enough. To, to that me. was enough. I feel like okay, that's that's plenty weird. Uh, we we get it. He's off his rocker. Uh, but yeah, I really didn't need the uh, the 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 CGI spiders. It's 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 one of those those parts. And it, again, I I love the movie, but it's one of those moments where I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, not that was a uh, try again, Russell. I mean, they're huge. So right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeremy, was that in the script? Actually, I was thinking I I can't remember, so I have to look it up. I I guess the the point of this was, you know, he was. You know, I mean, first of all, he is a pretty disturbed character, and he was doing uh, cocaine or something up the wazoo, and, <laughs> and and I guess it was trying to stress that he had he, he did something to him, like a, some sort of paranoia, and you know, he must have been uh, it, it it just completely upped him in, in a way that he was yeah, he looked kind of paranoiac and and. And even more twisted than he than he already was, and and it yeah the 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 scene is a, is a bit awkward, and you know I'm not a huge fan of it, and at the same time it 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 adds up to the the weirdness and and the creepy uh, atmosphere of, of the film, and, and and I guess you know spiders have a uh, you know they 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 have a bit of a uh, they've always been seen as kind of creepy and stuff like that. So, but 
Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Kevin Smith has always told the story about um, when he was working on Death of Superman, how, how the producer wanted to throw the spider in there. I cannot imagine Russell Mulcahy at any point in production said, there's something missing with this, with this, with this experimental art house Dolph Lundgren film are some spiders. I want some spiders in there. So exactly. <laughs> let's put them in. More spiders. <laughs> but O'Hara corners Clegg in the bathroom and just starts brutally assaulting her. I mean, this is this is some wicked stuff, and this is this is hard to watch. He starts brutally assaulting her. Luckily, Shooter is able to come in and rescue her, and the two square off. First on an elevator where O'Hara has Spotter as a hostage inside the elevator and Shooter is on top of the elevator and they're both shooting at each other. The scene is extremely reminiscent. I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but the scene is reminiscent of speed. If you remember the scene in the beginning of the film where Keanu Reeves is on top oh, of the yeah. elevator and Dennis Hopper has has the hostage. In that case, the, the hostage is Jeff Daniels. But it's the same kind of dynamic between between the two where they're shooting at one another. Uh, in the end, O'Hara, he just, he simply doesn't have a chance against Lundgren. Dolph just manhandles Haradol, and these, these scenes are awesome. Lundgren brings him into the bathroom, handcuffs him to the toilet after he just beats the snot out of him, and it is, it is glorious to see. Uh, Chris, <laughs> what, what do you think of these scenes? Oh, yeah, no, I mean, this is, look, I mean, we've we've seen this character be an absolute, you know, pretty much just a piece of puke for pretty much the whole time that he's been on screen. So, yeah, and I think we know, at least if you've seen enough Dolph Lundgren movies, okay, you know, eventually this guy's going to get it and, and he's going to get it and he's going to get it good. And, and that's exactly what happens is, you know, when they finally face off, uh, he, he, it, it's, it's, it's a whooping and, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's very satisfying and it's it's exactly what what we wanted to to happen to him, and uh, and, and obviously you know it could have it could have ended with uh, the the O'Hare character uh, you know being killed, um, but you know I think it's actually smart the way they did it, and and essentially having him you know not be killed but just be kind of handcuffed to the bathroom because I I think it's a very cool moment when we see how he actually does meet his demise. And it, it's a kind of a good twist in, in the movie. It is interesting how Dolph leaves him alive. I, I mean, I thought that was interesting considering he was just so vile and just like you said, a piece of puke. I love that. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it is. It's interesting that Dolph chooses to, you know, not kill him. And I kind of wonder, Jeremy, is this where you'd say, is this a turning point with Dolph's character where he is completely past all the violence and the killing and he is attempting to turn over a new leaf at this point? Well, I, I think that it's been working on him for that, and I'm not sure this is this would be really a turning point. I I see this more as like him being even more of an asshole uh, with O'Hara uh, and, and thinking you know he's a piece of trash and what what better and and worse for him than be handcuffed to the to the toilet, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, this is this is pretty gross, it's especially in this building. So yeah. I don't think this was really. Uh, oh, you know, I'm not gonna kill him because I'm over it. It it, it was more in, in some ways. It's more uh, cruel and, and giving him a, a lesson rather than 
than anything else. See, but here's my, okay, so this is a slight problem that I have with the film, and it's mainly, I don't know if you guys would agree with me or not, but it's mainly the character of O'Hara. You know, he is, we've talked about this, he's gross, yes, he is misogynistic, he is sleazy, he is pathetic, but as an antagonist, he's just kind of there, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, Chris, I'll go to you first. What would you say the the purpose or the point of the character of O'Hara is to the film? Because, and I don't want to give away the turn yet with the character of Klein, but with regard to the character of O'Hara, he has absolutely no connection to the agency. He has no connection to the leads. He, I mean, he's really just an obstacle in the way of, in the way of Shooter and Spotter in completing their mission. Well, to me, I think the whole point of the character is misdirection is you're supposed to focus on him okay. and be like, oh, this guy, this guy, oh, this piece of work, and oh, my God, this guy, he's, I wish I could just jump into the screen and tell him what for and really give this guy a piece of my mind, and oh, I can't wait for Dolph to really go to town and, and rearrange this guy's face and all that stuff. It's all misdirection for what happens you know, later in the movie for – for the you know the big turn and and you're basically like oh okay so there's a lot more going on than, than I thought here so I mean I think that's really the whole point of that character and, and I think it, it's it's in that in that you know f- framework I think that the character works because I I know when I was first watching it I wasn't thinking about his uh, his uh, partner in security at all I was just thinking oh well, that guy he's just going to be hanging out downstairs. And so uh, it's all about misdirection and it's about, um, you know, making the audience believe that this guy is a threat when he's really not a threat at all. Don't you feel cheated, though, slightly or no? No, no. Okay. Oh, no, no, not at all. No, I I think that that's actually one of the the things I the way that they play out those two characters and the way that they, you know, set them up and, and what you're supposed to think about them is one of the things that I really enjoy about the movie. I think that's, uh, you know, because, again, they're, they're, they're the, the, the B story. Well, really, the C story. I mean, the A story is the current mission. The B story is the, uh, the past mission. And then you got the C story of these uh, two security guys and what's going on with them. And, and I think the way that, they, that, that things get kind of switched around as to who is the bigger threat is, is one of the cooler aspects of the film. Jeremy, what do you think about the character of O'Hara? No, not, no, excuse me, let me back up. What do you think? We know what you think of the character of O'Hara, but his placement in the film. Would you agree? He Is he in there for misdirection or is he in there just as an obstacle? Well, I, 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 I guess it, it's both. And, uh, but yeah, to, to think of it right now, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure. I don't have a complete answer to that. At, at the same time, me is also like the kind of fool of the piece like you, you had a, a bit of a foolish character in stage plays or, or also kind of a, like the, the guy who shouldn't be there but he's there and at the same time it turns out that he's completely dead and fucked up <laughs> and gets in the way in the beginning but actually he's kind of a just a bug to crush or a spider, actually. Oh, well done, Jeremy. Oh, boy. Well done. 
<laughs> well done. But the film does provide another flashback. So Shooter and Spotter, they do embrace. He does save her. And we we do see there's always kind of been that um, that chemistry and then a, that attraction between them. But they do embrace. And the film goes back to yet another flashback to this previous mission once again. Big uh, Big spoiler here. We find out that Spotter was ordered to kill Shooter because he failed to eliminate the target. But due to the fact that they're in a war zone and under fire, she has not been able to complete that. And that's pretty much the end of those flashback sequences. And that is where we, as the viewer, we get to see, okay, that's apparently what happened to their relationship and why they, they do not trust each other. But yeah, we talked about O'Hara, the way he escapes the bathroom. He does escape this bathroom. Like you said, Chris, it is it is pretty cool. He rips the toilet out and is loose in the Algonquin <laughs> once again. Unfortunately, his escape doesn't last long. He's killed by Klein, and we have a big turn here. We find out that Klein is, in fact, the individual running the agency. He's also the man setting up the assignments and giving all of these orders. Jeremy, what do you think about these these turns here in the film? The, the first one, I guess, being the fact that uh, Spotter was, was assigned. She was supposed to kill shooter i don't remember what i how i felt and what i thought back when i first saw it but in a way now i think that we kind of expect it and at the same time it's still surprising i mean i'm more surprised by you know the security guard turning out to be their supervisor and and just blasting away o'hara suddenly in any case I, i i don't mind I don't mind those turning points. Just go back briefly and mention the 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 last flashback sequence in this war zone that I think is really awesome in the way it's shot. You know how you have this uh, camera mounting on a, mounted on a wire and it it goes down. You know you have Dolph and and Gina Bellman running away and you have all these extras and explosions from one side to the other and and i mean for this type of production i thought it's a really well achieved sequence chris what are your what are your thoughts on these turns the first one being the fact that spotter was supposed to eliminate shooter and the fact that klein the by the book security personnel is really the 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 man behind the curtain the man pulling all the strings with the agency what do you think about both those turns yeah, I mean the 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 turn with the spotter or with spotter really wasn't all that surprising because you know they were basically she was ordered to kill him when he first refused the uh, the job in the beginning of the film. Um, you know she at least that was she was tasked with that. I mean she couldn't go through with it. So I mean I always kind of got the sense that that's why she was there is that if he wasn't going to. If he wasn't going to carry out this job, then then she, it's up to her to finish him off. Um, so you know, having that reveal eh, wasn't it, it really wasn't all that shocking. But but I thought the turn with the with the security guards, I, I that was really cool. Something I mean that that shotgun blast and O'Hara be, you know flying through the the glass was a you know that was a I did not see that coming, and uh, I thought that was handled really well. Uh, it was very effective, and uh, you know the the movie did a really good job of you know a lot of times in these movies you can kind of tell okay this is the guy who's going to be the bad guy I kind of see this coming and now I kind of understand where this is going 
but uh, but no, they they got me on that turn, and uh, it was really really well done. Here's my question though about the the turn with the character of Klein. Why is he even there? I mean, is he is he a babysitter of sorts who just shows up at each assignment, making sure that those under his command follow orders and complete their jobs, and if they don't, he finishes. I mean, does he do this on every on, on yeah. every mission? Is that it? Or well, 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 it's 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 interesting because if you if you you know watch the movie and if you watch that beginning scene in the the you know whatever foreign country that they were in it's him who's who's giving the orders you know as to take the shot um you know it's uh, you have a clear shot uh, it's him who's doing yeah. that so yeah obviously he he's a very hands on i mean to me it seems like you know, I don't want to be, uh, you know, too too jokey, but it seems like a really poorly run assassin organization <laughs> because they seem to just have, you know, a, a lot of people, a lot involved here. They've got, OK, if he doesn't go through, we've got four guys in the chopper. You guys go after him. And if uh, if and, and then on the building, if it doesn't work out, uh, we've got a couple guys on the building next to it. And it just seems like they really aren't very well run. It's like. Instead of having these questionable people for the jobs, why don't you just, you know, don't hire the questionable people. Just stick with the ones that, that don't question anything and get the job done and, and don't have to fight guys who are hallucinating about, you know, CGI spiders and, and just, you know, move on with things. So, I mean, if you overthink it, I feel like it's, it's not a very well-run organization, but, uh, but it, it, I don't know. I, I feel like uh, that, that turn uh, was effective. And, uh, and it, you know, it got me, it, it, I didn't see it coming. And, uh, it's, it's, it's one of the aspects that I've always, uh, always dug with the movie. So I, I think you're referring to the, uh, nameless faceless cannon fodder that, uh, apparently <laughs> that apparently Klein employs, you know, that's one of the things about the film that, that I yeah. was going to mention is as cool as these final scenes are in the film, just that huge shootout. All of these, all of these guys who just come in, they're, they're the equivalent of stormtroopers. I mean, their faces are never shown and they, they don't have any names. They don't have any faces. I mean, they're always wearing helmets. They're always wearing masks of some kind. It almost feels like they have been thrown in the film just to kind of add some obligatory action in some kind of way. But I never, kind of like with, uh, with the stormtroopers in those Star Wars movies, you never, feel a, a threat with with any of them because like you you know like i said we we don't see their faces in any kind of way and they just come in i feel like they're there just to allow dolph to be a badass and and <laughs> blow some shit up but yeah they they're not very effective in their jobs either to be perfectly honest so <laughs> they're not very good shots i mean the one guy has like point blank with a machine gun on gina bellman and he's like blowing away every single piece of glass in the place but uh can't quite uh can't quite connect with her yeah yeah also i was about to say you know if Dolph doesn't have an doesn't have a name you know uh how do you expect you know the the the, the minions shooters to have faces or you, you know so of course they're i mean it's almost a given that uh you're not gonna show any kind of specifics i mean you could you could also i was just thinking that you could also almost see them as kind of like you're not even sure if they're humans or if i mean in this world you can even question everything in the way that are they even really there you know are, are, are they even real 
I mean, the 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 whole movie could be just like you know a a nightmare, a nightmare, and in a way, that's how it's presented. Yeah, and I like you said, Jeremy. I'm glad you brought that up because I kind of wonder. It's one of the things that I think might get lost. I mean, certainly for me, got lost on my first viewing. I notice it now, but I think I kind of wonder that they're trying to draw comparisons between the targets and the opposing army. You know, those who are killed are nothing more than tally marks. And so, yeah, like you said, I think they're meant to be nameless and faceless because that's that's the world that we're that we're in. But if we back up a bit, the film does shift to the next morning and, you know, they're about to complete this job. We see a town car traveling along the highway. Again, we don't know who this target is. We don't know why they were assigned. But this town car is traveling along the highway. Waxman. Sorry, I keep doing this, man. Uh, Shooter Shooter is once again becoming hesitant, and he is refusing to do this job. And Spotter, out of obligation, pulls a pistol on him, ordering him to complete the job. But, like you said, Chris, a rival assassin on a rooftop. So, yeah, it's interesting. Klein, he employs these these individuals for these jobs, but then he always has a backup on on the opposing buildings. Um, but yeah, rival assassin on a rooftop on the other end of the highway finishes the job for both shooter and spotter and opens fire on them. Shooter, of course, he's going to use that signature weapon and he does shoot both snipers and we get a firefight. I mean, the Algonquin becomes this hunting ground for members of the agency. And like we talked about, these nameless faceless soldiers crash land into the building and it's a great shootout. Chris, you mentioned earlier how Gina Bellman has that awesome kill uh, in this film. Lundgren also gets a pretty cool kill. We get to see him mirroring some John Woo, some John Woo isms with uh, he's holding two guns and he's sliding, you know, un- underneath them and, and firing up at them. It's a cool scene and it's choreographed extremely well. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's you know, shades of uh, of his, uh, you know, kind of a similar uh, shootout or moment in army of one when he's sliding around on the uh the uh whatever they call those things that people are underneath cars on um I, I, that kind of always reminded me the the scene in silent trigger kind of uh, may, remind me a bit of the the one in army of one when he's doing kind of the same thing and uh and yeah like i mean i mentioned the 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 kill earlier with uh, gina bellman you know shooting underneath the guy's chin i mean that thing that is just an incredible shot right there i mean yeah. that's i mean that's you know you you know, it's like, I, you know, that's a, that's just a, a personality kill right there. That's the kind of that's the kind of kill that you need in these movies to make them stand apart from all the other movies. You need stuff like that. And then you get the great one of uh, of him, you know, of, of Dolph killing the guy, you know, again, at pretty much point blank range with the uh, the sniper rifle, um, that which is, you know, another great bit of squib work on that kill and it's just it's a very cool sequence you know you're you're finally seeing you know this great location and it's being used uh with the backdrop of all this action and you know for a movie that had i mean it's had action but not really a ton of it for over its running time you know you're kind of hoping for a big payoff and and to me it it definitely delivers on that front i mean you you've kind of stuck with it you you've you know been with these characters you've kind of seen how they interact with each other and now you want to see it all all paid off in a in a big blaze of glory and and they definitely pulled it off here what is funny to me though is that klein comes in to <laughs> you know here here klein is he's seen his employee shooter and spotter excuse me his employees seen both of them kill his entire army 
and he thinks that he is going to come in and stand a chance. If, if I was him, I would get the hell out of that building and, and send in another assault team to get them. But the fact that he comes in with his shotgun thinking that he is going to be able to finish off these two employees once and for all is a little bit laughable. But he is able to fire around a shooter and hit him. I, I, guess, I guess his feeling is that anyone who hesitates is deemed expendable in this world, according to his agency. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, well, look, this is, he's in charge. He's the supervisor. That's what he kind of calls himself that at one point that, you know, he's the supervisor. So, you know, when, when all of his, uh, his stormtroopers can't quite get the job done, it's uh, hey, hey, this is, this is on me. And, you know, he's probably got some boss ahead of him that if he, if this doesn't get pulled off correctly, then it, then it's, it's going to be on him. So he's basically got to, kind of take care of of matters and uh and, and yeah so i mean it's understandable like i can see where where he thinks hey he just killed o'hara i mean that was a big big moment for him so hey let's see what i can do up on the top floor here so yeah i i can see where he would make that decision yeah uh klein does leave on the elevator and discovers that the elevator is wired to blow and he meets his demise as the elevator plummets to the ground and explodes, creating a massive fireball in the Algonquin. Potter leaves the Algonquin finally free from the control of the agency. We see, I, I love this, I love the acting on, on Gina Bellman's part here because, yeah, she, you can tell she's, she's almost a completely different character in these scenes as she's walking away because, yeah, she has this, this newfound sense of freedom as she walks away. And Shooter also appears, you, you know, the fact that I, I never once thought for a minute that uh, Lundgren was going to die here. But yeah, Shooter also appears. I love this shot of him as well as he stands on the rooftop victorious. He shoots a fire hydrant and then just the way he symbolically drops his weapon. He is also just kind of letting the viewer know and as well as as well as Spotter that he is also free of the agency. He mouths something to Clegg or Spotter, excuse me. He mouths something to her that... I, every time I rewind it, I can never tell. I'm going to get your opinions. Chris, what do you think it is that he mouths to Spotter? Now, I mean, they're, they're parting ways at this point. I never once thought for a minute that they were going to continue a relationship and they were going to be friends at this point. They're saying goodbye, but what in the hell does he does he say to her? No, I, I'm pretty sure he says, can you believe that O'Hara guy? <laughs> Goodness. That's that's. That's that's what I've always assumed that he said right the right then and there. Can you believe that guy? I'm, Whoa. I'm thinking he mouths something along the lines of spiders, huh? Am I right? Or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's the same thing that uh, Bill Murray mouthed uh, Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation. It's the the exact same thing. And forever those will be mysteries that will always be that will always be trying to be deciphered and no luck. Jeremy, do you have any insight as to what he mouths? Well, in all seriousness, I I think he just he just says a, a quiet goodbye, and the the original title was called the Algonquin Goodbye. So I think this is it. Uh, again, I I have to check because I haven't read it. I haven't read the two drafts I have uh, from the script. I I can't remember if uh, this was in the script or if if it's something that they added uh, on the spot. And again, you have to remember that uh, all, all, all this and uh, the, the flashbacks uh, were added pretty late in pre-production because originally they all died. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
And, you know, I remember before I saw the movie, I managed to glance at a, a German magazine, a movie magazine, uh, and uh, I guess the, the movie came out first on video in Germany. And so they had a tiny mini review of, of the film. And, and so I remember, I think at the time, I pro I, I think I, I just, because especially since it, it was an import, I wasn't going to buy the magazine the magazine just for that because it was expensive so i i believe i noted it down on a on, on a pad and then i i tried to uh translate it uh with my little knowledge of, of german at the time so from what i could understand the in this you know it was like a a, a four lines review of the film and they still hinted that Dolph uh could die or died, uh, but it it was a bit ambiguous, and I couldn't translate it properly, so I wasn't sure. And in some way, I I was almost expecting him to die. Like it, it was an idea that I that I liked, yeah. you know. So I was almost a bit disappointed uh, at the time. But nowadays, I, I I mean, I love this ending. I love the the score behind it and how. You know, as you said, Gina Berman walks out and, and there's uh, a sense of, uh, I don't know, I see her as a bit more, I'm sure she's coming out of it a bit more cynical or even more cynical than she had become. And there's a sense of melancholy or, or something that is working her up. And there's, uh, there's something unusual about their parting and, and saying goodbye, I, I, I feel. Uh, the one thing I'm not too sure about is Dolph's character shooting at the, the fire thing. We, yeah, we, with the, the, the water just coming out of it like a geyser. And it's, uh, I, to me, it's a little bit much. Uh, but other than that, I, 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 I love the, the ending. And it's, it's not the kind of ending that we, we see much. Uh, in those movies, but it, it uh, but I believe this one kind of, uh, reflects the, the entire film, uh, pretty well. Well, and the film does end with a song. Um, it's the only time I've ever heard this song. I've actually never even heard of the band Civilization. Um, I, but I will admit it is kind of a catchy song. But yeah, it, it ends over the credits. We have the song Mountaintop by a band by the name of Civilization is played. And we, like we said in the credits, we see that Lundgren and Bellman are credited as shooter and spotter. And then we have the other two lone characters in the film, Klein and O'Hara. But uh, Chris, what do you think of the song Mountaintop? <laughs> oh, boy, not a, not a day goes by that I don't wake <laughs> up to the, those soulful sounds. And it's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's, 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 I don't know why it's not, uh, why it hasn't been covered more often. And and used in in many more films since Silent Trigger, I I, I really have no idea. But uh, but God bless them. It was a it's it's a good little toe tapper, and uh, and it's it's the the perfect way to cap off a fine film. Well, Chris, as we close this up, man, I you know we get we always do the two recommendations, and I'm assuming that the film is going to get a recommendation on your behalf. But where would you place? Silent Trigger. Does it get a recommend from you? Both, oh, absolutely. Both as a Dolph Lundgren movie and as a movie in general. Why is that, sir? Oh man, I mean, I think this is this is a top ten film for him. I mean, easily in, in my book. Uh, 
it's you know it's got a little bit of everything it's got good action the characters work really well together it's well written it it doesn't it's not really one that spoon feeds things for you you have to do a little bit of work to kind of understand exactly what's going on um visually you know aside from a couple botched effects i think visually it's a real real very memorable film um and it, it just it works like gangbusters it's uh it, it, it's it's aged well i mean just watching it uh, before we recorded this uh this this podcast i mean I, i'm still into it i mean i i don't find that uh that just because i've seen it uh you know a few times over the last uh 20 some odd years that uh I, i'm not i'm definitely not bored with it it still works for me and uh and so yeah i definitely it's 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 an it's an easy recommend uh for from me uh for sure jeremy why does it get a recommend from you both as a film or as a Dolph Lundgren film? Well, for me, it's a it's a total gem. It's it's an acquired taste. So you know, I I I'd pick who I would recommend it to. And I'm I'm sometimes I get sad when I when I read really poor reviews online because it it, it doesn't deserve it. It's also a real shame that you know a few years ago, uh, Germany has released a really really slick. Uh, Blu-ray edition in proper aspect ratio and a really really good transfer from the the interpositive. Uh, so I mean that's uh, in terms of technical aspect that's one of the best Dolph Lundgren Blu-ray editions. And I wish it would come out especially in America because it's a film to rediscover and and I think we said that in the past it's uh, a lot of Dolph's films from that first era, let's say, you know, 1985 to 1995-96, those films actually age really well and better than you think. And sometimes when you see them nowadays in, compar- in comparison to, to what we've fed and what we see out there, you can tell how better those films were at at the time and silent trigger was definitely an odd one uh and in my book that's always welcomed so personally to me it's one of the uh the top films that he's led as a as a lead and a star but certainly you 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 have to to appreciate it in, in its own way because if you're looking for really you know, straightforward, uh, really detailed and explained story, you're going to be disappointed and, and left out. But other than that, the film has so much quality to it, visually and in terms of, the, again, the score and the sound and practical effects. And, and so, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, unfortunately, I'm pretty sure the, the movie didn't get back its its budget but uh it's a shame and at the same time i'm glad that someone uh was bold enough to produce uh this film yeah, no i i'm right there i agree with both of you guys you know when i first saw this movie like i said to be honest i really didn't care for it a heck of a lot and i think this was mainly due to the fact that i was just turned off by its ambiguity you know very little background to almost no information is given whatsoever um but as i look upon it now and 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 it's weird that it took me this long to to make this uh to have this epiphany if you will you know but i i think in the end the the ambiguousness of it is the point 
it's it's simply you know it, it's an independent film that tries to put you into the shoes of an assassin and i think you know in the end this film it's essentially it's a day in the life of an assassin that's what it is it's someone who is punching a clock and going to work like us all it's a job where there is zero attachment or background information needed or ever even given and so for that reason i think it's an excellent experiment of a film i i would say i i wish it was just a little bit longer and maybe it wasn't as ambiguous as it is maybe some of those gaps and some of those holes would not glare out as much, but, you know, I can forgive all those things. Regarding Lundgren's performance, you know, what's interesting about this film, he's he's not really trying anything new with this role, which which is okay. You know, compared to his previous two efforts, Men of War and Hidden Assassin, this character is is pretty straightforward. It's, it's almost, it's weird because he's almost playing a character similar to Ivan Drago from Rocky IV or Nikolai Rachenko from Red Scorpion or his character in Men of War. You know, he's he's this trained soldier who's questioning his place in life. And so for that reason as well, I think it's certainly a recommend because this is a role that Lundgren has proven on multiple occasions that he can excel in. Jeremy, like you said, while I do love this role, while I do love Lundgren in this film, I don't think this is going to be a film who, if I'm trying to introduce someone to the works of Dolph Lundgren, I don't think this film is going to be one of the first ones that I, I pass over and recommend. I think this is one that you have to see some of his other works first in order to fully appreciate this one. But, you know, having said all that, like I said, it is from his experimental era, he is trying something new. And as an independent art house little film that is you know, just as much a stage play as it is a, a feature film. I think it's a, it's a great little experiment of a film. Absolutely. agree. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm with you hundred percent. Chris, before, before I let you go, sir, um, I'll let you plug or give a shout out to anything. Is there anything that you're working on or anything that you want to uh, mention and talk about real quick? No, no, no plugs, no plugs. Just going to, uh, just enjoyed being on. Glad to to talk about this one with both you guys again. It's a good time, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully people enjoy this one, and maybe some folks who haven't seen the movie, you know, maybe this uh, this little podcast will uh, will turn some some folks on to it because I think it's it's worth worth seeking out, and uh, and I, I actually have that uh that the uh, the German Blu-ray that uh, Jeremy was speaking about, and it, it is really a, a well well put together package. The film looks fantastic. Jeremy, is there anything you want to give a shout out to or give a plug? Give a plug to? Not particularly. I'm just gonna say that I'm still working hard on finishing the my book on on the Punisher. So stay tuned and thank you for your patience because the reason it's taking so long is I want to really do this right and the best possible so it's a lot of details and as you know the the devil is in the details and and so it, so i'm really improving it and editing as much as i can and trying to deliver a really special book so i think all fans of the the film and the offering fans will eat it up and i'm i'm really proud of how it's turning out very cool very cool hey both you guys thank you so much for coming on i really do appreciate it for everyone out there who is listening please feel free to rate and review the show on itunes stitcher or wherever else you go to subscribe we always appreciate the reviews and seeing as how silent trigger ended with the song mountaintop 
I thought it was only fitting that we end this episode with a sample of this very song. So for your listening pleasure is a sample of Mountaintop by the band Civilization. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast. Terror!